Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. All right, welcome back to Exploring Mormon Thought. Today, as promised, we're going over theories of atonement. Uh, in the last podcast, we went over my dad's compassion theory of atonement and kind of just gave a basic overview of that. And today, what we're going to do is go through different theories of atonement and juxtapose them with this compassion theory of atonement, but also just kind of give a little bit of history and why they thought what they did. So again, if you refer to last podcast, we kind of laid out five questions that a theory of atonement would need to answer in order to be a coherent theory. So these will all need to hold up to that. All right, so I want to read this first about theories of atonement in general. You point out this important fact that it cannot be doubted that one can enjoy the benefits of the atonement without understanding it. Yet, if we can show that the central redemptive picture of atonement presented in Scripture is reasonable, and if we can illuminate its role in our lives, then our gratitude for the atonement would undoubtedly be enhanced. So, I like that. So, the atonement still works for you whether you understand it or not, but obviously, if you understand it more fully, then all the better for you. And it's also good to get rid of wrong ideas about it just because then you can use it more effectively. All right, and then we have those five questions I talked about, but overall, you give another litmus test for atonement theories. You say, a theory of atonement should explain, at least, how and why Christ's life, death, and resurrection save people from their sins and reconciles them to God. And that's the most important thing. So, one other thing in the intro here is, all theories of atonement have kind of a problem. You say, atonement itself presupposes that Christ has lived, died, and resurrected as the condition of forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. However, in the Old Testament, it presents numerous examples of God forgiving humans for sins. And in the New Testament, Jesus forgives people for their sins before his death. You'll recall, he says, you know, arise from my bed and I think thy sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees or Sadducees say, well, who is this guy that he thinks he can forgive sins? So that's before the atonement. So unless it can be argued that all of human history is focused on the cross in some sort of timeless, eternal present, then examples of forgiveness of sins don't require the temporally real occurrence of Christ's life and death as its foundation. Do uh, you have anything to add before we get into the actual theories? This is an argument that people often give for why there has to be foreknowledge, and that is that the atonement presupposes, at least on their view, that Christ is forgiving sins that haven't occurred yet, and or the timelessness of atonement because Christ doesn't atone until the meridian of time, if we want to call it that, and there were thousands of years of human experience before that. And so either there is such a thing as backwards causation or God is timeless and he relates to all moments equally and the atonement is somehow, even though he's on a cross and it occurs at a time in a particular place, they would say that this is a, a timeless act. I've rejected both of those views in, in the first volume, and for good reason. And so I'm going to reject any view that adopts that kind of an approach to the atonement. It seems like one is mounting a very large theoretical apparatus to try to explain the atonement, so that now the, the atonement becomes the problem to be explained rather than the explanation, and that just seems to be mucking things up in a way that is not explanatorily acceptable. 
what really ought to happen with atonement is it ought to be explanatory itself. It ought to explain how it is that we are reconciled to God and to each other. Again, imparting and departing from the position that sin is essentially rupture of relationship and that what is good and what is holy is what heals relationships and brings us into divine unity. So when I'm looking at atonement, I'm looking precisely at that problem because that is the problem of sin as I have worked with it. And I believe that's the problem of sin as it's understood throughout the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, sin is defined in relationship to the covenant and the rupture of covenant. Covenant just is the relationship between Israel and God, and sin is defined in terms of rupture of covenant. In the New Testament, almost without exception, sin is something that violates the law of love. It is anything that that creates distance for us in our relationships that alienates us, and what is good heals those relationships and brings about a loving unity such as obtains between the Father and the Son. So I adopt this view, the agape theory of ethics, which defines sin in this way because I believe it is primarily, I won't say it's the only view in Scripture, but it is the primary view in Scripture. And at bottom, it is the focus of what both the Old and New Testament revelations are about centrally. All right, great. Now we're going to kind of go into some different views of atonement. And for the first few, we're going to just kind of skim the surface uh, just to kind of orient us to the development of atonement throughout the history of Christianity. We're not giving it its full due here. If you want to read more about it, I think even Wikipedia has lots of material on each of these theories. So you can look there for further. We're just giving an overview of them until we get to penal substitution theory, and we'll spend most of our time there. All right, so the first one is the ransom theory, also known as Christus Victor. And this is the earliest view, as far as we can tell, and it was probably held for at least the first thousand years of Christianity. And go ahead and give kind of just a brief overview of what is this ransom theory of atonement. The ransom theory is actually articulated in a way that what is happening is it's built on the model of a slave that is being ransomed to buy the freedom for the slave. We use the term in English, you pay a ransom when somebody's kidnapped and you buy them back. In Jesus's world, a a ransom was something paid to free a slave from bondage. And so this is particularly appropriate when we're thinking of the atonement as something that delivers us from bondage to sin, which is exactly how it was viewed. But when it became a theoretical apparatus of explanation, the question was just naturally asked, well, who is this ransom paid to and who owes it? And it turned out that in, as it developed in patristic discussions and, and later discussions, there was a debt that was owed to Satan. And what happened is that, in essence, Satan got fooled because God sent Christ to pay the ransom. So the ransom was the life of the son. And he goes into the underworld, but Satan gets fooled because he doesn't know that, that hell can't contain Christ because he's going to defeat death and be resurrected. And so the ransom gets paid, the devil's satisfied, but then he gets tricked because he can't keep Christ. And so, you know, once it gets explained in that way, just explaining it that way shows the kind of parody that the theory can become. Now, in another way of looking at it, in modern law, and this is the term that's used throughout the Book of Mormon, it doesn't use the term ransom very often, but it uses the term redeemed extremely often. It's, a, it's one of the most common terms used in the Book of Mormon to explain the action of God in saving us. 
And to be redeemed is this. It's the same thing as buying a slave, but we're dealing with real property. We redeem real property when property has been lost to actual foreclosure. So it's gone. It's no longer. But a third party can come in and pay the amount that is owing for the property. And when it is, it's redeemed after a foreclosure. It's called a right of redemption in property law. And so it's also appropriate because we're lost. We've actually been foreclosed upon and belong to the devil and Christ comes in as a third party and pays what's owing. Now, again, if it's pressed beyond simply being a picture of being freed from sin, it quickly turns into nonsense because there's no property transaction involved. But this is the important thing. I want to make this point. All of these theories that are in the Old and New Testaments aren't really theories. I call them picture analogies. In other words, they're word analogies that draw a picture for us to get an idea of some aspect of atonement. They're not meant to be developed into theories that make rational sense when we push them. They're simply meant to give us some idea of one dimension of what atonement is doing for us. Atonement is delivering us from our captivity to sin and redeeming us from having been lost. And what were we lost to? We were lost to our own self-deception and our inability to see beyond ourselves, to see that we were justifying ourselves in our own sin, selfishness, and self-absorption. And so it works as a word picture. It doesn't work as a theory. And that's, I think, an adequate explanation of the ransom theory. Okay. And yeah, a lot of people picked up on that. Like I said, it was believed up until the 1000s, I guess. And a person who is pretty famous, known as Anselm of Canterbury, came up with a different idea about the atonement known as satisfaction theory. And you say the satisfaction theory is basically based on kind of the feudal system that existed when Anselm was alive. And so everyone's like, oh yeah, I guess it can kind of be like that. So in a feudal system, a lord or an owner of land has honor. And so if you offend someone's honor, then a price must be paid. You know, like if a lower class person somehow violates the honor of a higher class person, then they have the right to take some sort of payment from you or just do something. Well, let's say that you go into the king and you walk in and then you turn your back and walk out. You have soiled the honor of the king because you turned your back to him and now he can have you punished because you have smitten his honor with your disgraceful act. Okay, yeah, so something like that. And and then you say, to maintain his honor, God insists on adequate satisfaction for the encroachment on that honor by his serfs, or us, for sin. So sin here is analogized to the failure to render God due honor, an act of disrespect that injures his reputation and integrity as Lord. The impugned honor can be restored either by punishing those who impugned it, or by a third party. However, because God's honor and dignity are infinite, no human can satisfy the injury to God's honor, for the satisfaction must be proportionate to the honor impugned. Man thus needed someone who had the capacity and merit to satisfy God's honor. Only God is infinite, however, so only God can satisfy this demand. However, for satisfaction to be acceptable, it must be offered by those who have impugned God's honor, which meant that only a human could satisfy the demand of God's justice. Thus, to satisfy the demand of justice to restore God's impugned honor, only a God-man would suffice. Thus, God expressed his mercy by offering himself to restore his honor as Jesus Christ. Moreover, to satisfy the demands of justice for all humankind, Christ offered himself as a sinless sacrifice so that the merit earned by his death brings satisfaction to God's wounded honor 
for all human beings. What would you say some strengths are to that? And then what do you think its downfall would be? In this view, we have this operation of honor, which is something that was a very strong recognition in Jesus's day. When Paul writes, and he writes about grace, and he writes about the relationship between God and the Christians, it is this system of honor that he's reflecting. And so at least makes some contact with that. And it is the case that we have acted against God's holiness. We've acted in a way that's inconsistent with being in relationship with him. So it captures some aspect of what we want to recognize, I think, in the theory of atonement. But I think just explaining it the way we have, we can see that it's extremely outdated. It has this peevish sense of royal honor that none of us are going to accept. And more importantly, justice is restoring honor. And, and I don't think that any of us believe that it's consistent with the law of love or being a loving person to demand this kind of reparations for injuring God's honor. It seems to me that love would turn the other cheek and not even worry about honor. Moreover, I don't see how it's, it's really merciful that God himself steps in unless God's honor, the Father's honor, is actually being repaired by himself. In other words, it demands that there's this kind of identity between the Father and the Son, which would be inconsistent with almost any theory of the Trinity that doesn't make the Father and the Son identical and therefore would seem to presuppose the heresy of modalism. And so there are a lot of reasons why Anselm's theory is not going to really make sense for us in our culture. In his culture, it may have made more sense because everybody shared those values, or at least they had a sense for those values. But at least in modern American culture, we would look at that and say, isn't that what we fought a war to get rid of? And we won it, and so we don't want to go back. And I'm being somewhat facetious, but that's actually what's happening. We have a disconnect between cultures, and the senses of honor, justice, and mercy that are being used here no longer make contact for us. All right. Makes sense there. In direct opposition to the satisfaction theory, Petrus Abelard came up with a different theory known as the moral influence theory. And I'll just read what you wrote about that. You say, Abelard saw Jesus' death as the perfect example of God's love for humans. He argued that God does not need to be affected by the atonement. Rather, humans must be changed so that they can commune with the holy God. The problem is that humans lie in sin and fear and have chosen to be alienated from God because they are ashamed to be in God's presence. As Adam and Eve were when they discovered their nakedness and responded by hiding from God. However, Christ's willing death as God demonstrates that we have nothing to fear from God because he loves us. God's love is manifest not only in Jesus' death but in his entire life. Jesus did not come to die but to demonstrate God's love. His death was only a consequence of human refusal to let go of its fear and accept God's love. So, I guess before you comment on that, just as a way of information, most of these other theories are what's known as objective theories, and their main outcome is that they change something in the view of God. Somehow they allow God to be able to forgive us. This view is pretty unique in that it's known as a subjective theory, meaning the change is not in God, so God can forgive, but it's actually a change in humans. Anyway, go on, and I think you actually probably like a lot about the moral influence theory based on what we read about the compassion theory. 
Right. I think we'd have to say that it's true as far as it goes. I mean, this fits right in with the story of the fiery flying serpents, and all they have to do is look at the serpent and be moved by Christ's life and death and his love for us in order to be saved. And I think that we would say that Jesus' death was, in fact, inspiring, and it was a perfect demonstration of God's love. And so what I want to say is that as far as it goes, the, the moral influence theory is accurate and true. It just doesn't go far enough. It seems to me it doesn't go far enough because Mahatma Gandhi could also have, have performed the atonement. Mother Teresa could have also performed the atonement, and maybe they did in the same respects. And so this isn't, you know, the kind of thing on which all human history turns, and it's not the kind of thing that only God could accomplish, as the Book of Mormon says, because the Book of Mormon is clear that only an infinite God can atone. And so the question arises, well, why is it that only an infinite God can atone? And what is it that's infinite? So the moral influence theory is true, but it's not really a theory of atonement. It's a part or an element of the atonement because it focuses on Christ's love and the inspiration that we derive from that. But I don't think that it really explains what a theory of atonement ought to explain. Okay, and then the next we'll just touch on briefly as kind of a touch point on the way to development of the penal substitution theory. Now, this one's called the governmental theory. So this will show the development of this concept of justice. So God's justice is the law, and he can't simply forgive sins without upsetting this justice. So I guess it'd be kind of like saying God is the author of laws, and let's say he's like the government. So if there are laws and someone violates them, all of society that is under this government demands that that justice be paid. Otherwise, it's you know not just. So you see someone, let's say someone steals something from you, you want justice for that. You don't want the government to just forgive them because you've been wronged, but it, I guess in this case, it's God's justice that has been wronged. Uh, I don't know what... Tell us more about the governmental theory, I guess. Well, a, a good way to address the governmental theory is that this is a theory of atonement that was in a sense being lampooned by Victor Hugo and Les Miserables, demanded that Jean Valjean be sent to prison for five years for stealing a loaf of bread to feed his starving family. And what this demonstrates is that the law can simply be too severe and not really just. One would, I think one would say in defense of the governmental theory, well, all of God's laws are in fact just. They are the perfect measure of justice. And so any law that he has has to be just, by definition, I suppose. But then we would want to ask, I think, of, of this particular approach, where could there be any mercy? Because all it really does is inflict punishment and Mercy consists in not letting anybody off and having everything governed by law. It doesn't really explain what a theory of atonement ought to explain, and this seems to be more of a theory aimed at God's governance of the world than the action of Jesus Christ as a divine human being in the world. And it seems to focus atonement more on what God the Father does than on what God the Son does. Okay, and... Fair enough. And again, if you want to learn more about that, you can read more about it anywhere on the internet. Okay, now we're going to move to the penal substitution theory. And we're going to spend a lot of time here because this theory, or at least a version of this theory, is probably what most Mormons believe. And there are some reasons for that, but we're going to try to go over this theory and examine if it actually can hold up. 
And obviously, as you can tell, my dad doesn't think so. I've read what he has to say. I'm fairly convinced, but we're going to go over it. So let me just start it with what you wrote, and then we'll talk about it. And then we're going to move into five main objections, but we'll start where I mentioned. So this theory is actually a separate version of the satisfaction theory. It comes out of a development of that theory. And this is developed by John Calvin, who we've talked about before. Uh, Calvinism, if you'll recall, comes from John Calvin, which is famous for everyone's predestined, and God has already chosen a, f a few, and he knows the future and fallible. It's already written, stuff like that that we've talked about before. Anyway, this same person came up with this view, or at least the core of it. So the focus of the penal substitution theory of atonement is God's holiness, which cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. And we'll recognize that phrase from the Book of Mormon. God cannot simply forgive us when we have violated his law because his holiness establishes the standard of law and his justice demands his law be obeyed. He cannot simply forgive without violating his own nature and justice. If the law is violated, God's attribute of justice demands that punishment must be inflicted on the violator. However, God is also merciful, and thus he accepts Christ as a substitute sacrifice on our behalf. When we are justified by grace, God does not see us, but Christ's righteousness. He therefore judges us based on Christ's merits and sinlessness rather than our guilt deserving punishment. Thus we escape the wrath of God because Christ is substituted in our place to receive the penalty of justice. And so most Mormons will recognize that as sort of what they believe. But before we get into the nitty gritty of it, what would you like to say about penal substitution? The penal substitution theories had a strong influence on Mormonism because a lot of the language used seems to be, and I want to emphasize seems to be, used in the Book of Mormon to explain the atonement. A lot of the terms that are used in the penal substitution theory, such as God cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance, God has established a standard of law, and he must be both just and merciful. God has a Christ intervenes as a substitute in our place. We are saved and move forward only by relying on the merits of Christ. All of this kind of language would seem to be buying into the penal substitution theory of atonement. And so I think for these reasons, it's kind of been the default position because the thinking is, well, that's what the Book of Mormon is talking about. Therefore, that's the view that we accept. Okay. And we'll return to this and examine it in a moment. But just to emphasize how much we adopt from this, and I guess this sort of adopts from others, but most LDS people would probably be familiar with a video on the atonement narrated by President Packer obviously while he was alive in the 90s, and that's of a fun-loving, careless guy that goes and takes out a large loan on some land, and there's a due date for the payment for the land, and he signs a document promising he's going to make this payment, and then he kind of fritters away his time, and the payment comes due, and he doesn't have it, and so the, the guy that he owes the money to, the creditor, comes and he's like, hey, where's my money? He was like, I don't have it. He's like, well, you signed this paper, therefore, you have to go to jail now because that's the agreement. If you don't give me my money, then you have to be punished. And he's like, but what about mercy? He's like, well, if I give you mercy, then where's my justice? He's like, well, if you just give me justice, then where's the mercy? And in the video, then a third party, obviously representing Christ, comes in and says, hold everything. I will pay 
for this land. Look, I just paid your debt, like the atonement, and now you are, I can't remember exactly how they did, I don't remember if he was saying, basically, you're indebted to me now, or, you know, somehow you have to do something. But anyway, this, this is a very common way it's been portrayed that LDS believe, and we're going to get into this later, but I'd like to point out early on a difference between monetary transactions, as far as law goes, and violations of moral law. One of the cornerstones of my discussion has been the I-Thou relationship that obtains between persons. And the cornerstone of that is the persons are not things, they're not objects, they're not like money, they're not impersonal. They are intrinsic valuable ends in and of themselves and not a means to something else. Money is merely a means. And so we're essentially moving out of the world of interpersonal relationships and into the world of impersonal monetary transactions when we adopt this theory. And I think it's important to recognize the slate of hand that is taking place here because we're taking analogies that might work in a monetary world, but they're not going to work when we're dealing with people interpersonally or we're dealing with them as, as persons having moral accountability. What happens with the penal substitution theories is we smuggle in our intuitions about monetary transactions and say, oh, that works. And then we realize that if we apply it really directly to our interpersonal transactions with each other as people who, under the law of love, we're going to be really put off by the entire recognition that we blew it. And we blew it precisely because we got taken in by moving from the I-Thou world where we discuss interpersonal relations to the it world, and once again we got schnookered. And so the intuitions that work in one system are not going to work when we get right down to what's at issue in atonement. Right, we'll return to this when we get to objection number three, but I just wanted to point that out early on. And just to put it starkly in the book, you kind of say, if we get a parking ticket that is a violation of, you know, just a law of the land, that's not really a moral violation, then a third party could step in and pay that and everyone's happy and that's fine but like you said that's very different than let's say someone kills your son or murders them are you going to be okay with a third party coming in like you know what i'll serve the sentence for that person no because that kind of thing can't be taken care of by a third party anyway we'll get into that but i just wanted to point that one out because i thought that was a very strong way of showing the difference there okay so before we get in i guess one other thing you say, this theory of atonement assumes that there is an eternal law of retribution that God cannot annul without ceasing to be God. It assumes that the eternal law of justice is that a price must be paid if there is sin. And so, with that in mind, we go through five objections to the penal substitution theory. So, number one, the penal theory posits a conflict between father and son. So, explain that if you would. Well, okay, what is it that is being satisfied? What is the demand of justice? The demand of justice is the wrath of God at the sins that we commit. And so what this posits, we even get, you know, a lot of people will interpret uh, statements in the Doctrine and Covenants that Christ is our mediator. He steps in between us and it posits kind of this wrathful, angry father who wants to punish us. And then we have the loving son who intercedes on our behalf as our advocate and persuades the angry father to not punish us because Christ loves us. The problem is, is it makes that the father to be rather an ogre when you get right down to it. In addition, what do we have happening here? The conflict between the father and the son is that the father demands justice while the son is merciful. 
how are we going to maintain any kind of unity of will or purpose between two people when we have them warring in this way? Now, I want to talk about Doctrine and Covenants 45 and 3 through 5, which seems to be, and let me emphasize again, seems, or appears to adopt this kind of an approach. It says, listen to him who is the advocate with the Father, who's pleading your cause before him, saying, Father, behold the suffering and death of him who did no sin, in whom thou wast well pleased. Behold the blood of thy son which was shed, the blood of him whom thou gavest, that thyself might be glorified. Wherefore, Father, spare these, my brethren, that believe on my name, that they may come unto me and have everlasting life. Now, at first glance, the Son is the one who's willing to intercede for us with the Father because he has such a great relationship with the Father, and the Father wouldn't spare us. He wants to punish us. But I think the key to this particular way of approaching things is the focus on the blood of him whom thou gavest, that thyself might be glorified. In other words, it's the joint gift from the Father and the Son. They're united, not actually apart. And the important part is, is that it was the will of the Father also that we would be forgiven. It can't possibly be the case. No Christian could with a straight face say, yes, the Father wants to punish us, but the Son has convinced him not to do it, which is exactly what it appears is happening. That's not what's happening as I read it. What's happening is he's saying, you and I are in one accord, that what I have done is toward the glorification of both of our names. and. I have interceded out of my love for all of my brothers and sisters, which is the love that thou express first by sending me as a gift to the world. So I think that the scripture can certainly be read in support of the penal substitution theory, but I think that if we posit that, then we're going to have a rather bad view of the Father, and, and you know, we get to talk about a loving Savior who's saving us from the wrathful Father. It seems to me that we would be better off interpreting it the way that that I have, and I think it's also open to that interpretation. Yeah, great points. And also that kind of brings to mind the famous book by Dostoevsky, The Brothers Karamazov. And in there, just I don't remember exactly, I have to look up the word-for-word -word reading, but one of the things that they discuss is like, you know, I, I don't think I can worship this wrathful, vengeful God. I, I, I think... I have to worship Jesus, you know, he's, he's merciful and loving, and they're just so very different. And I can only picture God as this loving being. And so, and in a lot of movies and different media, a lot of people point that out, that like, there's a very confusing picture of an angry, wrathful God and Jesus, and they seem to be at odds with each other. And yeah, that's a major weakness I see from this view. And I think that we would agree that Yvonne, who is the Ivan is a believer in God. He just doesn't accept him as somebody that he can support. He's rebelling against God because God is such a wrathful, angry, just a, a rotten kind of a being who's directing what's happening in the universe. And I think that we all ought to join Ivan in his criticisms of this view of atonement and in this view of God. We should never picture the Father as somebody who wants to punish us but gets convinced by the loving Son not to do so. Really what this is playing on is, you know, we've got a loving brother, but our father is just somebody who's abusive and we have to avoid. So I think this is a major weakness of the penal substitution theory. And then next, and I'd possibly even more convincing, is the second objection, which is the penal theory is unjust. So just a quick line from the book, you say, punishing an innocent person in the place of those who are guilty is just flat out unjust. And I want to read the story that you put in here that is circulated very widely in LDS circles. 
I'll read it, and I'm sure you've all heard a version of it. A schoolmaster establishes rules at the beginning of the year. Any student caught stealing will receive 50 blows with a cane on the bare back. That's kind of some rules they all come up with or something. Someone steals an apple from a student who is older and stronger than the rest of the students in the class. However, it is soon discovered that the youngest and weakest student in the class is the one who has stolen the apple. When he is caught, he explains that he stole the apple because he was so hungry and that his parents couldn't really afford to buy any more food. The schoolmaster insists that the rules that all the students agreed to must be enforced, so there must be a punishment for the theft. However, the stronger student is so moved by the younger student's plight that he agrees to take the punishment in the place of the younger student. The schoolmaster then explains that there is a certain law that allows another to be punished in the place of the guilty party. So the schoolmaster beats the stronger student for the crime. The weak student is so moved by the strong student's willingness to accept the punishment in his place that he loves the strong student. And of course, this is supposed to be an analogy, having the strong student be Jesus and us being the weaker student who has violated the rules. Yeah, and, and the schoolmaster is the angry father who insists on justice at all costs. <laughs> right, and you can comment on this more, but in, in the book you point out, right, well, no, because what should have happened is the minute that the little boy explained that he was starving and that he stole out of desperation, not out of malice, that he should be able to be forgiven there, and they should see that their random arbitrary experiment of rules really isn't more important than someone eating. And that's one thing. But then this little twist in here that doesn't really actually make sense. It's when the schoolmaster explains that there's a certain law that allows another student to be punished in the place of the guilty party. How so, you know? And that's the crux of this objection to the theory is there is no rule like that. That's not just at all. That's the linchpin of the entire theory is that there is such a law. In other words, there's a law that requires that somebody has to give a pound of flesh in order to be forgiven, and that the father's not going to accept anything less. That's the linchpin of the entire view. And again, you point out that, like I said, this is kind of a, a development from the satisfaction theory, and it was natural in for Anselm, who came up with the satisfaction theory, to think of the atonement in terms of satisfaction for crimes, because under the feudal legal code, guilty parties could simply pay to escape punishment for any crime at all like even murder or rape or mayhem. The punishment for all crimes was monetary in nature. Thus, if one is caught committing a crime such as rape, you could either pay a fine or find someone else who would pay the fine for you. And if the third party was willing to pay the fine as a gift, then the criminal would get off scot-free. And so this view holds to a system of morals and ethics that I'm pretty sure that no one would agree with today. Yeah, the problem is the distinction between, well, there are two distinctions. One is that when we're dealing with monetary transactions, we don't have personal moral accountability for failing to pay if we can't pay. I'm not a bad person if I can't pay, I'm just poor. But if I rape somebody, I'm morally bad, and you can't take out my son and beat him for the crime that I committed, that would just be wrong. There's also this distinction between two types of crimes. One is, it's malum prohibitum. That's Latin for saying it's only wrong because it's prohibited. And remember, you brought up, you know, we have a parking ticket. If I park in the wrong place, I've got to pay a fine. Not because it's morally wrong to park there, but because we've all agreed we've got to raise money. And then having people pay for parking is a good way to limit the number of cars parking and to raise money. But when we have a crime that's actually malum in se, that's Latin for it is bad in and of itself, 
So, for instance, if I murder somebody, I can't just say, well, punish somebody else in my place and accept that because he's willing. Even if a person stepped forward, let's say I've killed somebody and you were willing to step forward as my son and say, look, I love my father. Punish me in his place. We would all just look at you and say, we're crazy. We don't punish people in the place of the guilty person. That would be immoral in and of itself. It's immoral to punish somebody who is innocent. It's just that simple, as, I, as we said before. And the entire penal theory assumes that somehow it's just to punish the only innocent. In fact, not only the only innocent, but the most innocent person in the history of the world in the place of all of us guilty people who actually deserve the punishment. It is the most unjust way of explaining atonement that one could possibly come up with. All right. And so, yeah, you point out two things that the penal substitution theory assumes. One, that our guilt can be legally imputed to Christ. And two, that the righteousness of Christ can then be imputed to us, even though we are guilty and deserving of punishment. And like you said, that violates fundamental moral intuitions of pretty much everyone. And anyone, you point out, a really good thing for Mormons to keep in mind is that anyone who rejects original sin because you know, we believe it's unjust to punish someone for something that he didn't do personally, must also reject the penal substitution theory for the exact same reason. And then you point out the next thing that will lead into number three. You say, you know, I guess punishing Christ would be just if he were in fact guilty for the sins he's being punished for. And a person named Stephen Robinson suggests that the penal substitution is appropriate because Jesus did not assume the punishment for our sins he actually posits that Christ took on the actual guilt for our sins as well, which brings us to objection number three, which is the penal theory erroneously assumes that guilt can be transferred. So, like we pointed out, this theory is, I guess we jumped the gun, but you just point out in the book that, you know, usually the penal substitution theory is demonstrated with the analogy of debt, paying the debt by a benefactor of another who justly owes the debt, like I pointed out in the, uh, President Packer narrated movie that a lot of Mormons have seen in Seminary and Institute. And again, you point out, monetary debts are formal and impersonal types of transactions that are pretty out of place when we're talking about moral culpability. And then one of the strongest things in the Book of Mormon, at least against the penal substitution theory, is in Alma 34, where Amulek states that, Now, if a man murdereth, behold, will our law, which is just, take the life of his brother? I say unto you, nay, but the law requireth the life of him who hath murdered. So it's just showing this moral intuition is that, no, if you are guilty, then only you can pay the price for being guilty in a moral sense. How did Stephen Robinson suggest that it worked that Christ got our guilt? And where are his follies, if you point those out? Stephen Robinson, many will recognize, used to be a, a religion teacher at BYU. He wrote a very famous book where he uses the bicycle analogy to explain the atonement and the scripture about we are saved by grace after all we can do. Unfortunately, and even he later recognized it is, I think that his analogy or metaphor is, is just a terrible one. It doesn't work at all. But he actually wants to overcome this argument that it's unjust to punish Christ because Christ is innocent. He's saying, well, Christ isn't innocent because not only did he take on our punishment, he took on the guilt of what we did as well. Well, that just seems to me to be impossible. How could Christ, who didn't, didn't do any of the bad things we've done, be guilty for the bad things we've done? It just seems absurd on its face. 
So what he's trying to do is solve the problem of the notion of this sense of unfairness, that punishing Christ who is innocent is unfair because it's unfair to punish an innocent person. He's saying, well, he's not so innocent because he's also guilty because he took on our guilt. And now he's making guilt vicarious. But guilt can't be vicarious in that sense. It can't be impersonal in that sense. It makes sense if we're talking about monetary transactions to say that you can pay my debt and we're all good. It doesn't make sense to say that, you know, we can punish my son for a crime I committed. There's just a vast distinction. Right. Great. Okay. And then number four is that the penal theory limits God's power to forgive. So the view assumes that God can't do what humans can do, which is just simply forgive someone without requiring someone else to suffer. So let's say you and your wife get in an argument and you say some stupid things that are hurtful and mean, and then you go and apologize and you say, I'm sorry, I said some stupid things, I didn't mean it, can you forgive me? The wife is perfectly capable at that time to, you know, no one would blame her if she was still mad, but she has the power in her to let go and forgive that. And in fact, we as a society, and as church specifically, put that kind of behavior on a pedestal. We say that is a great example. That's something that we should all aspire to, to forgive people their trespasses. And yet this theory says God can't do that. Yeah, forgiveness just seems to be a power that we have. And you say, well, you know, we go and we ask forgiveness of our wife. But forgiveness is not about the person who has wronged us or that has done the act. Forgiveness is about what we do. Even if a person doesn't come to and ask forgiveness, we have a perfect power of simply letting go and saying, I forgive you. Happens all the time. I could give you dozens of stories where somebody is driving drunk, they kill a family member, and you hear the next day in the paper that the family is saying, we forgive this person. That kind of majestic divinity expressed in that kind of forgiveness is something that I think we all recognize because it is a divine act to forgive in that way. Sometimes it's really hard to let go. Sometimes forgiving the other person is just so tough for us that, that even when we say we've forgiven, in fact, we haven't forgiven. But it is a power that we have, and it's in our interest to let go and forgive because refusing to forgive is like taking poison and waiting for the other person to die. The only person that is harmed by our refusal to forgive is us. And so to say that the Father simply can't forgive us unless somebody pays a pound of flesh literally, it just it seems to me to be inconsistent with our basic human experience and what we all recognize is in fact the true divine act of forgiveness. All right, and then some people that would object to that say, well, God, if he was just, if it was his personal honor, then he could just forgive, but... God can't just simply overlook sin because he has to uphold an entire system of justice. And if he didn't, then he would simply forgive us, but he can't because it's his job to uphold this justice. But then you point out, okay, even if that were true, it hardly upholds the law to punish an innocent person. All right, and then the last objection is that the penal theory entails a legal fiction. You write, the penal theory asserts that when a person is justified by grace... The righteousness of Christ is legally imputed to the sinner, and the sinner remains a sinner, even though she is no longer under the dominion of sin. And when God views the justified sinner, it is as if he sees Christ when he looks at us, and thus sees only Christ's righteousness and merit rather than our guilt and filth. God declares us righteous by grace rather than based on anything that we do. And you point out, well, however, this view entails that God engages in declaring a falsehood to be true. It's like he's just turning a blind eye to our sin and just saying like, oh, even though they're guilty, 
I'm going to pretend like they're not. This is the central Protestant doctrine of at once a sinner and also saved. And the notion is, is that Christ's merit is imputed to us in atonement, and therefore the Father disregards our sin because he only regards Christ's righteousness. And so, in a sense, he's, as you say, just turning a blind eye to reality. And it seems to me that the entire matter is is just suggesting that God's going to pretend that something else is true besides what is true. And then let's, that's pretty much the summation of all the problems with the penal substitution theory that I want to point out. But I want to kind of juxtapose it to your compassion theory in some way. So I think, at least as far as God's justice goes, a lot of LDS people would probably say it's more along the lines of that, I mean, it kind of touches on this in the beginning, but that God is holy and no unclean thing can dwell with God. And so to get back to God, we have to be cleaned somehow. We have to be holy because maybe it's not his choice and he's not just angry and wrathful, but we can't be in God's presence if we're not also clean and holy. And so we would need to explain how we can become clean and what it is that Christ does to get us that way. You know, we've tried to, in these different theories, they've kind of give some sort of substitution, but I think if you view God's justice as that, then it's more like, well, it's not really God that needs to change. It's back to a subjective theory, like the moral influence theory. There's something in us that needs to change, but how, on your view, again, does Christ bring about that change in us? There are two aspects to the compassion theory because it's a mutual theory of impact. In other words, Christ is changed in his capacities to succor us and to have compassion for us because he became a human being. And not only that, but because he experienced the greatest swing and stretch from being totally intimate in unity with the Father while in Gethsemane to being totally abandoned on the cross. Point out where that is, because we talked about this, just you and me, on Sunday, and we talked about it when we did do the compassion theory, but point out where that takes place in the scriptures and what the key terms are to understanding that view. The notion that Christ swings from total unity to total abandonment In John 17, we have the high priestly prayer. At the beginning of the prayer, if you'll look at John 17 very closely, he begins by praying that the glory that he had with the Father before the world was will be returned to him. And he's praying to be one, that he and his disciples can be one with the Father. If you'll look down toward the conclusion of the chapter, he is thanking the Father that he has been made one with the Father and that his disciples are one, and he is thanking the Father for having returned the fullness of his glory that he had with him before the world was. And so, right within the chapter, we see this progression from praying and seeking this fullness of glory and and unity to fulfillment of a fullness of glory and unity. And that's in John 17. And so what I did was give a very close reading. As I said, DNC 19 presupposes that that prayer takes place in Gethsemane, and it's the centerpiece of what happens in Gethsemane. And so as I read John 17, it is positing that Christ is left behind the divine glory that he had with the Father, but while he's in Gethsemane, he achieves this complete unity again. With this complete unity, there's a return of a fullness of experience of all reality that he shares with the Father, because that's what sharing fully in the glory and unity with the Father means. He now has a fullness of knowledge of all human experience up to that time. And then Judas has betrayed him. The guards come and get him and take him back and forth between the Romans and and the Jewish leaders. And then on the cross, what we see is this 
just heart-rending prayer where Christ is in his greatest moment of need, and he is in the moment facing death as a mortal being. Now he's totally mortal. He's dying. And in this moment, he cries to his father, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou abandoned me? Christ had this sense of being totally abandoned while he was on the cross. And so what we see, and and the reason we focus on these chapters as the essence of atonement is that we see most clearly here the result of what it is for him to join a fullness of human experience with the fullness of divinity and to know what it is to be completely one with the Father and then to be completely abandoned. And you may say that there are more painful or worse ways of dying, and there may be, but no being has ever joined this unity of, of divine experience with human experience ever before. And so we have something totally unique taking place. And as Alma 7 says, he's learned something essential in his human experience. Becoming human expands his capacities to have compassion, that is to experience with us, not only from a third-hand perspective, as I said, you know, when we walk into a bank and a robbery is taking place, God knows that we fear for our life, but he doesn't fear for his life just because he knows we fear for our lives. But there's this immediacy of firsthand experience of knowing what it is to be a human being. And he has joined that together. Now, that's the effect that atonement, which is his entire human life, has on Christ. And the Mormon scriptures approach the atonement as Christ's entire human life several times. And then the influence that the atonement has on us is twofold. It inspires us as in the moral influence theory, but it goes beyond that because the essence of being a Christian is to have God's Zoe, his life, his divine life, enter into us and take up inhabitants within us so that we now live a co-shared life, so that we can begin the process of sanctification to grow as one to be as God is. And so what happens in atonement is also something that happens for us. We are in doubt with God's own life to take up and give us life. We begin to live a new life as Christians because it's a divine life in which the divine nature begins to be in our countenance. Christ's image begins to be in our countenance and to grow until the perfect day because the light grows within us as we grow in sanctification. And so the atonement is him giving what he now has, this fullness, and giving it to us. And remember, his fullness has increased. He's glorified the Father, and it's a mutual glorification And this is an ongoing process of mutual glorification where the Father glorifies the Son and the Son glorifies the Father. And the disciples glorify the Son and the Father and they glorify the disciples. And so there's this mutual growth and glorification that goes on forever, if you will. But in atonement, what happens is we are now joining to become one. And so atonement is given to us with this new fullness of humanity being joined with the fullness of divinity and being offered to us so that we can become what Christ is. He opens doors that had never been opened before. Exaltation became possible because of the atonement. And remember, in the Old and New Testament, the recognition is the people enter into their exaltation through the work of Christ. This is a new level, a new degree of glory that can be reached because of what Christ has done. That door had never been opened before, and so now there's more light and glory in the universe as a result. And the bottom line for us is that when we share our life with Christ, there's this dimension. It's just a given reality that it's painful to move into that kind of relationship with us for Christ. He is taking into us the painful energy of our lives to be in unity with him so that our own light can be quickened by his light. 
so that the painful human energy that we share with him of our sins is then taken and literally transformed by this divine energy into a sweetness that blesses our lives because we have learned from our experiences. When we spoke on Sunday, we came up with a pretty good metaphor, I thought, of a hypothermia victim. Let's say sins affect are, you know, like a hypothermia victim where you're there, you're in need, you're hurting, and Christ can be the warm person, and you, what you do is you strip down and you get in like a sleeping bag or something together, and the warmth of the not hypothermic person will slowly increase the body temperature of the other person to bring them back. However, it is painful. If you ever had someone put their cold hands or their cold feet on your warm body, it doesn't feel good. And obviously this is nowhere in the ballpark of what Christ actually feels in relationship with us, but it's that idea where it's an immediate cold, painful feeling to try to bring someone up to your level of body heat. And it's a good metaphor in a sense. It captures this sense that when we are unified together, we're at one level and he's at another, and it causes pain to him. It's just the reality of being in relationship with us to be in this momentary pain. It's the same kind of thing when, a, you know, you'd say, well, why would anybody repent then? Well, why would anybody have children? That's painful too. The fact is, is just some things are worth the pain, <laughs> okay? And he's invited us into relationship with them, and he is willing to go through this pain in order to share his glory with us. One thing the scriptures are very clear about, and that is that we give our sins to him in the sense that what we have done, where we are at our level of light, we share fully with him our life energy, our fullness of our lives, and it's painful for him. He bears our sins in this respect, that we have within our own energy, our own life energy, the memories of our sins and the pain of our sins, and we feel it. We feel the pain of our sins, even when we're not consciously aware of the pain that still resides within us. Christ takes that into himself and processes it and endows it with his own light and glorification because we're willing to give our lives to him. And so what I'm doing is making concrete and real what in the past has been taken to be some kind of a mere metaphor. And I'm saying, no, the scriptures talk about this divine light and the sharing of the energy of our lives as a reality, not merely a metaphor. This is, this is the way things are. There's an actual light, an actual life force spiritually that is shared. And it causes pain for Christ momentarily or, and possibly even eternally, just like it causes pain for us when our kids go wrong. In patristic thought, they had this notion of divinity. We couldn't share fully what God is, but if you, the power of this energy, and they call it the energies in Eastern Orthodox thought, the spoon can share in the nature of the fire when it becomes hot. In a similar way, we participate in the divine nature when we share in the divine life with Christ as life enters into us and the energies literally enter into our bodies. And so this is something that's actually been developed somewhat in Eastern Orthodox thought. And it comes also out of Second Peter 2 and 4, where it talks about the fact that we share the divine nature. This is a reality. It's not a metaphor. And so I'm kind of reinterpreting what in the past is, you know, because of the Mormon scriptures and the way they speak very concretely about the degree of light that inherits and endows our bodies. The Mormon scriptures speak of the level of light that gives us life as a given reality. And the light that we share in is reflected in the kind of law, the kind of life that we live. And so the Mormon scriptures don't take this to be a metaphor. The light of divinity is not a metaphor. It's an actual energy in the universe that gives us life. 
and we are resurrected and given life according to that degree of light, according to the law which we've obeyed. That's in DNC 84, 88, 93. I could go on, but it's throughout the Doctrine and Covenants of the Revelations of Joseph Smith. All right, excellent. And in conclusion here, just again to reiterate where we're going, I said this last time, but before we continue on to the next chapter, I'm going to, in the next couple of podcasts, probably just because it's long, I'm going to be reading a paper from my dad on that's called Atonement in Mormon Thought. It will go into his compassion theory a bit more in depth. It also brings up some unique theories of atonement that are unique to Mormonism and were come up with by Mormons. And it will also address some objections that people have put forth against the compassion theory, both in formal written form and then just through conversations with people in general. Yeah, so just kind of a preview, Corey will be writing a paper that addresses Skousen's eternal intelligence's demand for justice theory of atonement, the self-rejection moral theory of atonement developed by Eugene England, the empathy theory developed by Dennis Potter, and the divine infusion theory developed by Jacob Morgan. And so Mormonism has spawned a number of fairly unique expressions of atonement that, you know, are really, I think, worth considering. And each of them, I think, adds something to our knowledge. Okay. And then I think with that, we'll close this one out. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.